As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by This Is Bracket Racing Elite. If you're an open-minded racer with a desire to improve on the racetrack, This Is Bracket Racing Elite can provide the tools to help you do so. This week's podcast is also brought to you in part by Bill Taylor Enterprises. BTE is a manufacturing, design, and support company that specializes in high-performance automatic transmission assemblies and components for drag racing, off-road, marine, and street performance. With over 50 years of experience in drag racing, BTE has been a trendsetter and innovator, placing themselves and their customers ahead of the pack. All right, all right. Big Jed, episode 101. We should be better at this by now. <laughs> yeah, we should, Luke. <laughs> Very good point. Man, what a ride. So, and it gets, the, the topics are just getting really good right here in the, the hundreds. I guess that we have to talk more about excessive braking. I'm not fired up about that at all. I feel like I'm going to say a lot of the same things I said last week. I'm kind of tired of talking about it. But we're going to talk about it because it's definitely on the minds and in the voices of racers across the country. The NHRA Tour Big Jet has two weeks left of racing, one divisional left, Las Vegas, one national event left, World Finals at Pomona, a lot yet to be decided. I'm going to put my nerd hat on and break all of that down. And I wouldn't say that Randy Folk, like, had a dispute or an issue with any of the things that we said in our million dollar race coverage last week but randy has reached out to us did want to clarify a few things and i said well what better way to clarify and let your voice be heard than to just come on the podcast so we will be joined later in the show by million dollar race owner million dollar race promoter randy folk to get a little bit more perspective on what happened 
at the million, why, and maybe some direction of the race going forward. But first, Big Jed, one of the events from last weekend, near and dear to your heart, I uh, completely out of the loop. I didn't get to make it down this year. Tell us what happened at the BTE Southern Footbrake Challenge, Holly Springs, Mississippi. Well, Luke, uh, it was our sixth event there at Holly Springs in the BTE Southern Footbrake Challenge, and uh, we always have a Thursday test and tuning gamblers race at our events. Uh, Mother Nature started sometime mid-morning on Thursday, and she rained down on us, pun intended, for nearly 24 hours till about 9 o'clock Friday morning. So obviously Thursday Thursday's program got canceled, uh, couldn't do anything there. Friday we got off to a late start. It was a cool, windy, low 50-degree day with misty rain here and there, very challenging. But thankfully, the hardworking folks at Holly Springs Motorsports and Steve and I combined did not give up. And we finally got a $10,000 winner on Friday around 1 o'clock Saturday morning in uh, what was some very, again, cool and challenging temperatures, but the track held up really good. And Josh Green, our buddy uh, J.G., Got the win over J.D. McNeil out of Texas, uh, Josh out of Tennessee, and uh, took his silver bullet Nova to the uh, to the final round, $10,000 payday. Uh, got that behind us, got up Saturday early, early, excuse me, and got things rolling. It was a beautiful day on Saturday, and we got a $10,000 race and a $2,000 gambler's race in. The $10,000 main event, Edmund Ellison come down from Ohio to borrow Josh Green's Chevy 2, and he got the $10,000 win. So Josh was uh, one as a car driver and owner and one as just an owner, so a pretty good couple of days there for him. Edmund got the win over John Burleson, John out of Tennessee, very, very tough foot brake competitor for a long, long time. Got him a runner-up there in the $10,000 payday. The $2,000 gamblers that was held after that, was won by Caleb Ellison. Wait, Caleb, that, that yeah. name sounds familiar. Ellison. Yes. Didn't you just... Yes. Yes, I just said Edmund. That's the older brother of Caleb. Both of those guys made uh, the next big thing list. Caleb actually, I believe, was number one on that list when it was all said and done. And uh, he got the win over Aaron Jones out of Texas. So Texas racers showing up big time there. And that trend continued on Sunday where Dylan Bontrager... Got the win over Dylan from Texas. Got the win over Michael Crass out of Kentucky to wrap it up. Dylan getting him a $10,000 payday in foot brake, which I think Dylan told me um, he hadn't foot braked in quite some time. Just decided to come on over, and that paid off real well as he adjusted very quickly and got the $10,000 win on Sunday That's real quick. impressive, Jed, because yeah. I've been to the Southern Foot Brake Challenge. Like, and I went at a time where I kind of fancied myself a footbreaker, and I got real quickly reminded that I'm not as good at that as I think, and there are a lot of people way, way better. <laughs> so for Dylan to just hop back into that fray and swap feet and win 10 grand, that's impressive. It was very impressive, Luke. Dylan had to figure it all out basically on the fly and adjusted very well, and obviously it paid off on Sunday. Quickly, just some little special awards that we had. Our great friends, uh, Robbie and Jeff Lopez and Lopez Motorsports Group, had uh, some cash money for the last racer standing each day from west of the Mississippi. 
Friday, J.D. McNeil got that. Saturday, our buddy Luke Siebert got that. And Sunday, of course, with the win, the last man standing overall was Dylan Bontrager. So he collected that money. And uh, the Richardson boys, uh, Ryan and Blake and Austin and Edmund, they uh, sponsored the Long Distance Award with a new RBZ billet steering wheel. And Steve Stockton got that coming down from uh, Menominee, I think, Wisconsin is what it's called. About 884 miles. So it was a really good event, Luke. We started off challenging, had 154 entries on Friday, got to 187 on Saturday and 179 on Sunday. So we're very pleased with that car count, all things considered. And I just want to thank the BTE for being our title sponsor and then all the great sponsors that helped us out. Troy Morgan and Jeff Lambert helped out with a live feed and we appreciate those guys as well just and thank you to the racers for believing in us and coming down doing a lot of racing it was a it was awesome time luke nice shout out to the texicans looks like a big performance from the lone star state yeah and how about josh green channeling his inner was that anthony bertozzi (laughs) yeah i'm gonna win it behind the wheel (laughs) i'm gonna win it watching my boy i'm just gonna win it yep it was a good time. He was definitely enjoying himself. A funny side story. I actually ran into Josh and his wife on our way to Montgomery. We met up at a truck stop, just random. They were on their way to vacation somewhere. And he told me, I'm going to Holly Springs. I got my Nova back together. One of the Ellison boys come and drive my Chevy 2. Like, that's probably a good pick. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That paid off. Nice work, Josh. Way <laughs> yeah, to pick them. Well done. <laughs> All right, Big Jed, that's a wrap from Holly Springs, Mississippi. And that brings us into one of our favorite parts of the show. Although I got to admit, the topic's getting a little bit tired this week. But once again, it is what everyone is talking about. This week on What Everyone Is Talking About. Hi, Luke. So obviously, we all have social media and we all see what's going on and it is what everyone is talking about and that is the sfg excessive braking rule that they have i guess you could say they've announced it they've announced that they're going to have a excessive braking rule but based on everything i've seen i'm not real sure that it's a hundred percent clear but i'm sure you've seen it and have a take on it as well but so Let's talk about that for a little bit. Hold on. Let, let's just start with the ruling, the, the post, okay? This was on Facebook. I think this was originally on the SFG page shared by AJ Ash, the right-hand man of Kyle Riley at SFG. It basically says, after several discussions between Kyle and AJ and the recent occurrence, which is obviously the situation at The Million, really brings things to light. We both feel it's a safety issue that has been let get a little bit out of control. So with that being said, SFG will be enforcing the excessive braking rule at our events. This is for the safety of our racers because it's not just your safety, but the racer in the other lane also. Quote, quote, smoking or sliding the tires in excess will get you one warning and the next time you will be disqualified. If it's so excessive you crash, you will be automatically disqualified without a warning. It says Kyle and AJ had discussed this several times before, but now think it is important to implement the rule for the safety of our racers and their opponents. I've got some thoughts, Big Jed, but let me give you the floor first. Well, thank you, Luke. I'll try not to take too long. I mean, I've said this before. I actually didn't put it in my notes, but I will start by saying... 
if we want to be as safe as we can be, uh, from my perspective on the racetrack, let's start drug testing first. We'll just all line up day one and uh, get a drug test and, and we'll go from there because I'm way more worried about someone being under the influence of something than I am someone sliding the tires and running over me. Obviously, that is something that could happen, but I would prefer that uh, we just start drug testing right off the bat at these races if we're, if we're going to make sure everybody's going to be as safe as they can. Now, that being said, not surprised by someone announcing that they're quote-unquote taking a stand. Obviously, it is a super hot topic right now, and you get some really good attention by saying that you're going to address it. This guy doesn't expect much to change at all. It's easy to say that basically we're throwing you out if you wreck or you get really close to wrecking, then you're done. So what about the ones that don't crash? Is killing 20 mile per hour on a drop excessive braking? You're dang right it is. Will that racer be tossed? Apparently not unless they crash or get close to crashing. So I'm not the guy that thinks rules will change the way that racers drive enforcing the rules will change the way that racers drive but how do you enforce close calls or near misses i'm not real sure that's clear yet and as i've told a lot of people over the last couple of weeks i've co-promoted now 18 races with my partner steve stites i cannot remember a single race in those 18 where i didn't have a conversation with a racer about aggressive finish line driving had that conversation with a young man this weekend and he said you're right i know didn't mean to and i will clean it up and he did just that um, a fine fine young man that understood that he was in the wrong and wanted to correct his mistake so you know i think we can change the culture of this this aggressive finish line driving when it's excessive by handling it privately making a public stand i think will force the promoter's hand at some point and we'll just have to see how that plays out because i i think making a public stand you might be setting yourself up for a lot of different people's interpretation wanting yours to be the same as theirs yeah, well said. I think we largely agree on this point, Big Jed. The drug test is interesting. Like, can we put that in line? Can we just do it all in one where we drug test for safety and then we have a polygraph test for cheating? Because I saw that floated out at some point recently, too. Can we do that together? <laughs> yes, we can. And actually, okay. they can put a swab under your tongue now, and that drug test is pretty much instant. So it's not the old uh, TT in the cup thing anymore. I'm sorry. Okay, well, that, that that does sound simpler and a little bit less intrusive, so that's cool. <laughs> My overall take on this, Jed, I, I think that this um, stance, this rule, this ruling, this implementation, whatever you want to call this, I think it's ridiculous and yet predictable. I'll just go out and say that this, to me, is a public relations stunt, okay, because – the incident at the million that obviously we've covered extensively, we talked to, we were blue in the face about it last week, everyone's talked about it, happened, right? And there was 
a great deal of pushback, at least. And it, maybe it's the vocal minority. I don't think it is. But there was a great deal of pushback over the way that it was handled and certainly the driving habits of one Corey Galetti. That created a divide among racers. You know, there was a racers that stood up for that act, that action. Like, hey, it is what it is. He's trying to win the race. And there's racers that says, no, that's completely crossing the line, right? Very unsafe. So I think my perception of this is that the guys at SFG saw a market and they appealed to it. It's right now what you've got, Jed, is two opposite ends of the spectrum, like two complete extremes. You've got the million, which I said last week that felt like the wild, wild west, right? Whether that's a little bit of an exaggeration or not, I don't know. What Randy Folk calls it is southern style. He'll be on later. That's what he said in our phone conversation repeatedly. So you got that where so to speak, anything goes, and the, the wind light trumps everything, right? That's the priority. So there's pushback on that. So the SFG guys come in and take the other side of that, and we go to the other extreme, over-enforcement, okay? And you say, well, Luke, that's just not over-enforcement. This is all in the name of safety. This is common sense. Listen, I'm not for excessive braking. Like, I want to eliminate it and minimize the danger as much as anybody. The problem, as I discussed last week, and as you just alluded to, Jed, is enforcement. It can't be enforced objectively, the, the excessive braking rule. It's impossible. So let's be completely clear here. If anyone gets tossed, if anyone gets booted, disqualified from the race by their rules, they probably earned it, right? Does the rule say, if you smoke the tires or get out of control, we're going to give you a warning. And if you do it again, we're going to throw you out. Okay, so if you do it twice... You probably deserve to be thrown out. Like, that's not smart racing. It's dumb. You're, you're trying to get hurt. That's not the problem here. The problem is that in the same event, probably in the same round, if that decision's ever made to throw somebody out, there's probably five other racers who hit the brakes just as hard, who were just as out of control, that didn't get so much as a warning. So I, I don't care how you slice it, how you try to do this, enforcing a rule like this is nothing but selective persecution. And it gives the impression of favoritism because you can't objectively make this decision. The only objective rule that you could make here is the rule that's actually in place to say if you hit something or if you cross the center line due to excessive braking, you're out. And that impression of favoritism is one that AJ just reinforced when he made a second post. Like he, there got a lot of pushback on this, you know, some support and negative pushback. So AJ makes another point, and he actually names out, singles out like four or five racers: uh, Troy Williams Jr., Gary Williams, Stephen McCrory, Brandon Taylor, and says, "I have watched them drop hard continuously for most of my racing career, and 99% of the time, they are not so excessive that they're out of control and endangering the other racers themselves." The way that I read that, Jed, is, "No, we don't want anybody to hit the brakes, but I know that if Gary or Troy or Champ hit the brakes, they do it in control in a controlled manner." What? Yep. That is the whole problem with this rule. That's basically saying that you're going to enforce this rule on Joe Blow, but not on somebody that you respect. Like that doesn't, That's the way that I read that. It's no different than like the, the, the old NCAA joke. Like We're so mad at Kentucky that we're going to give Cleveland State the death penalty. You know what I mean? Like it just, I'm, t <laughs> I know that I'm taking this to the extreme and I don't mean to single out AJ and Kyle. I, I understand the, the reaction, but I think it's a knee jerk reaction and I think it's 
incorrect and impossible to enforce. So for the 18th time, the same thing that I said last week, the only rule, whether I don't care if you like it or not, the only way that this rule can be enforced is exactly what's in the rule book. If you cross a boundary or you hit anything before or after the finish line, you're out, regardless of the cause. That's the way the rule book reads, and it's for that reason. It's the only way to objectively enforce it. And there's people that say, okay, well, let's make an example of someone, and then the problem is going to go away, right? Because, okay, you know, we sacrifice somebody, but everybody learns you can't race like that and get away with it. We've been through that too, Jed. It was, what, 18 months ago with Jerry yeah. Emmons. He got thrown out at Phoenix. Now, 18 months removed from that, we can say, what came of that? Nothing. Nothing at nothing. It was a huge stink. They disqualified Jerry Emmons. What's happened since then? Uh, to my knowledge, and listeners, please correct me if I'm wrong. To my knowledge, no one anywhere in NHRA competition has been thrown out for excessive braking, short of hitting something, as the rule actually reads. To my knowledge, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, no one's even been warned. Are there any fewer racers today, Jed, locking up the brakes at NHRA events? I don't no. think so. I think NHRA made an example of Jerry Emmons, and it accomplished nothing other than making us talk about it. To me, and this alludes, and granted, I'm taking 10 minutes, Jed, to, take, to, to say what you probably said in two earlier. But the answer, same conclusion that you came to, the answer to all this, the solution isn't consequences, especially not consequences that cannot be fairly enforced. It's education. It's culture. And that falls on all of us. There are, quote unquote, safer ways to drive the finish line. Notice I didn't say safe. Let's not ever forget we play in a dangerous sport. Like There is no way to legislate the potential danger out of it. The idea behind a, quote, a, a drop Okay, to when you're going to hit the brakes, the idea is to make sure that you're not under when your opponent is, right? So the premise here is you want to kill ET, but you can't just lift it half track because your opponent would lift too, and then they wouldn't break out. So that's the the base idea here. The later you drop, the harder you drop, the more effective that drop is because it's more difficult for your opponent to catch it. And I get that theory, but you and I know, Jed. That's not entirely accurate. Okay, we are traveling at great speeds. Like, we cover a lot of ground in a very short period of time, particularly when we get close to the finish line. If you alter momentum as you approach the finish line, and this is the big caveat, and your opponent is not expecting it, it's essentially impossible to race against. Let me give our listeners a little behind the curtain to some of the stuff that we talk about on thisisbracketracing.com. You know, everybody talks about like catching a drop. Like, yeah, my point dropped and I caught it, right? <laughs> that's not a thing. Like, that's complete BS. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm a pretty good finish line driver. Like, been doing it for a long time. I can't catch a drop. Yeah. If I'm wheeling you through, Big Jed, and you hit the brakes, and I don't think you're going to hit the brakes, or you lift off the throttle, and I don't think you're going to lift off the throttle, guess what? By the time that I see you do that and react to it, I have probably crossed the finish line. Yes, and your eyes get big, your mouth goes open, and... Sherman Adcox says that's a mouth-open drop right there. (laughs) Never saw it coming. (laughs) Right. So catching a drop, don't fool yourself. That's not a thing. Anticipating a drop, that's a thing. So, Jed, replay that same scenario. If I know 
that you're going to kill two hundreds. Okay, like I just watched you go six eleven and you dial six thirteen. Or if you telegraph your drop, because that's really where the the skill comes in here is when I'm rolling an opponent through and they look at me, look at me, look at me, and then look forward and kind of grip the steering wheel, guess what? They're about to drop. Like they're making sure that they're centered up in the groove before they hit the brakes. It's a very natural thing, okay? That's telegraphing the drop. So it doesn't matter at that point. If I know it's coming, it doesn't matter how you do it. I'm going to do one of two things. I'm either going to anticipate that drop because I know it's coming, or I'm just going to set in behind you. Like, if I know that you're holding 200s, why would I ever get in front of you? You got to kill 200s. Why, why would I make it harder? The point here is that there is no sense in driving in super deep and hitting the brakes way too hard. It accomplishes nothing other than endangering yourself and your opponent. So if you, quote unquote, stop or drop 50 feet earlier and not quite as hard, your opponent's not going to, quote unquote, catch it any better if and if he's anticipating your uh, your telegram he's probably going to do a good job regardless of how and where you do it so in essence there is nothing to gain by hitting the brakes later and harder Uh, it just endangers everybody and that's the educational part of it now the cultural part of it is we got to say this is the way to do it and driving in deeper and stopping harder is not only unsafe it ain't cool either. The key to, to, to success here is to be unpredictable. And you can be unpredictable while being relatively, again, safe. As racers, we need to educate. We need to create a culture that identifies, praises the good driving while condemning the dangerous driving in a realization that, sure, oftentimes there's a fine line between the two. That's ultimately, at least in my eyes, not the race promoter's responsibility. It's our responsibility as competitors. Very well said, Luke. Very well said. And uh, you made all the right points there that some of these things that we think are cool on the racetrack are not cool. And again, as I said last week, we need leaders in the pits, not high-fiving these things. We need leaders in the pits saying, hey, bud, got away with one there. Let's settle down and make sure that that you're doing this the right way because as you said these things where you think you got to go down there and stop crazy hard try to trick somebody nah, that's that's not happened they didn't they didn't miss your drop they just wasn't anticipating it so very well said for sure let's transition into some race results big jed our, boy, our buddies DW and Wesley Washington Jr. put on the Triple Crown at Darlington last weekend, highlighted by a $50,000 to win main event. Take us through the big winners from South Carolina. Yeah, they had a 10K warm-up to get things started, and Will Cawthon got the win over Michael Shoup. I think Will's had, if I remember right, he's had a pretty good last 30, 60 days. So uh, getting his weekend started with a nice 10K win light there in the final the 50k was very interesting will holloman which we all know how talented will is and has had uh, a really good last couple of years i got the the 50k win over randy biddle jr and luke i don't know if you've heard but he was hitting the bottom and that's understandable because this is the year 
of the bottom bulb racer in Ooh. these big events. Yeah, I don't know if you heard that, but that's catchy. We should use that. <laughs> we should. RBJ again showing up big time, getting the runner up in a 50k. Really big deal for him. And Will, I believe, is doing this for a living right now. So anytime you win a 50k, whatever your share of that was, is huge for you. So congratulations to both of those guys. And the 20K uh, Sunday wrapped up with uh, Kevin Pruitt getting a win in his wagon. And I saw Kevin post that it had been a little while for him. He's been really close. We all know how great Kevin drives. But I think it had been a little while to get a big win like this in the wagon. So good for him. Great job getting a win over Robert Vogler, which is another guy that always seems to show up in uh, big final rounds, especially in that part of the country. So DW and WW having a, a good race to wrap up the Triple Crown 25s that they've been putting on all year. I hadn't thought about it in that perspective. That's a lot of Ws. That is a lot of Ws. All right. Will Holloman won a 50 grander. He's not this week's BT who's hot. Randy Biddle Jr. drove to the final of a 50 off the bottom. He's not this week's BT who's hot. You mentioned Will Cawthon and how hot he's been. He's not this week's BT who's hot. We talked earlier about Josh Green winning a 10 as a driver, winning a 10 as a car owner. He's not this week's BT who's hot. Big Jed, who in the wide world of sports is this week's BTE who's hot? He's on fire. It's time for who's hot in sportsman drag racing. BTE is one of a few full-service transmission companies with a full array of manufacturing and testing capabilities. Their in-house CNC facility is paired with an extensive collection of gear hobbing and shaping machines to produce any high-performance driveline product. From inception, BTE's racing products are designed, prototyped, field-tested, produced, inspected, and even shipped by real racers. Just outside of Memphis, Tennessee, their warehouse and manufacturing facility in Mount Pleasant, Mississippi, is stocked with thousands of parts and centrally located in the United States for fast delivery anywhere. Luke, as you mentioned, you went down a list of uh, guys, a bunch of guys that uh, had really hot weekends, but this guy had a very good weekend that could have put him in a, a lot better position than he's in right now i'll let you explain but i'll tell everybody that jeff lopez the original tex-mex got the win got a double win in stock and super gas at the noble divisional and just good honorable mention his wife liz got a runner-up in super stock but the lopez family longtime racers jeff a longtime championship racer with a couple of big wins there at Noble was big for him. Yeah, no question. And as someone that typically races alongside my wife, this is almost as good as it could possibly get. Jeff Lopez, who has an incredible track record everywhere, let's be completely honest, he's a former NHRA Supergas World Champion, has an amazing track record at Noble. He's doubled up at this divisional event before in Supercomp and Supergas back, I want to say, 2010. Several wins at this facility. He did it again. Wins in stock and in Supergas. So that's a double at a divisional. That's hard enough to do. 
I believe that he won uh, one final, came back for the other, and as he's pulling under the bridge at Noble, he's watching his wife, Elizabeth, stage up in the final of Superstock. That's right, three Lopez's. Three final rounds. Liz ultimately was defeated in the Superstock final, so she took runner-up honors in addition to Jeff's two wins. But that is an impressive, impressive day for the Lopez family. A unique side note, Big Jed, while we talk about this uh, event at Noble, which was actually postponed from, what, two, three weeks prior. Uh, there was too much, uh, too much rain in the area, the pits underwater, forced this race to be postponed to this weekend, which is now very near the end of the NHRA season. This race was actually shortened to an eighth mile event, which is extremely rare for an NHRA points meet due to some sort of timing system issue where they basically couldn't get the quarter mile clocks to work um, come Saturday morning, shortened everything to eighth mile. And I guess it is what it is. As I mentioned earlier, it's a postponed race. It's late in the season, so you don't have a lot of options in terms of moving it to a different facility, in terms of making it up on a later weekend. You've got everybody there. You kind of have to get the race in. And I guess to an extent, racing is racing, whether it's quarter mile, eighth mile, thousand foot, whatever the case may be. But the dynamic, particularly in the super classes, completely different eighth mile to quarter mile. A, it all happens super quick as someone that has run some some particularly super comp. Like, that's 570 heads up on the eighth. Like, about the time that the throttle stop kicks wide open, you got maybe a couple of seconds to figure out the rate of closure and the finish line's gone mm-hmm. by. Like, it, it, it it's a very odd look. And keep in mind, today's typical 890 car, uh, with the throttle stop set up to run 890, like that doesn't put you anywhere near 570. I think I need to go 617 to go 890, and I don't have the fastest car in the class. So you're talking about completely reinventing the wheel to speed it up enough to a 570. Again, I understand the call, and I realize that it was probably the only option. But man, if I was there competing for a championship, really in any category, but specifically in the superclasses, I would not like that at all. Tough deal for everybody involved, but uh, obviously there was some that overcame, none better than Jeff Lopez. Another huge, huge performance from Noble, Coy Collier, when he's not a guy that we've talked about as being in contention for the Super Cup crown. For the longest time, he has had one race remaining, and he had to win it to even get in the picture. Uh, Koi Collier got that one last race. It was at Noble. Koi Collier won that race. Clutch, clutch victory on the eighth mile. That Super Cup win puts him in a tie for the national points lead with Don Nichols. He's listed atop Nichols on the NHRA page, so I assume that means that Koi Collier wins the tiebreaker, assuming that those two end tied. Koi Collier wins the race, takes the national points lead, and I'll get deeper into this a little bit later on when I put my nerd cap on and really break this down. I don't think it's a given that this isn't going to hold up. Like, Koi Collier may, may, there's a lot that has to happen. He may have won himself the world championship, Big Jed. Yeah, that was a clutch performance, and, you know, obviously he's been hanging around there, but that was coming to the to tie the points lead there this late in the season was kind of unexpected, so Coy putting himself in a pretty good position. Luke, obviously there was a, a big performance there by Jeff Lopez, but it's got some stuff around it that's creating a lot of drama for him, so... Tell us a little bit about what's happening and what has happened to Jeff Lopez in NHRA competition. 
All right, sit down if you're not sitting down. If you're driving, I don't know, maybe pull over. This is bizarro, man. This is weird stuff. But here's the situation, because when Jeff won at Noble, I thought, ooh, like that Justin Lamb and Brian McClanahan have set the bar really high for this year's Stock Luminary World Championship. But when I saw Jeff's name winning, I'm like, oh, he's got a shot. Like, he's got to go west. He's in the mix. And then I pulled up the points, and I was I was confused because it wasn't what I looked at. So I dug a little bit deeper, and then I got more confused. And then I called Jeff, and I still don't really have any answers. I've reached out to NHRA. Here's the situation, as best I can determine it. At a race back in June, the uh, Division Four event in Tulsa, Jeff Lopez was disqualified from competition after winning first round of competition. Now, let me set the stage a little bit more. He didn't defeat anybody first round. He had a competition single. So there was no one in the other lane. He rolled across the scales following first round, and we was like 75 plus pounds heavy. Okay, Went to fuel check, at which point a tech inspector inspected his car and, and found a loose ballast, which, if we want to be completely to the point, was a two and a half pound weight. Okay. Technically, loose ballast, right? Technically, against the rules. Two and a half pounds. He's 70 plus pounds over. He just defeated air, right? There was, there was no loser here. He was disqualified for excessive uh, or loose ballast, okay? Uh, and you say what you will about that. Like, I think that's uh, an, maybe an odd interpretation of the rules, but the rules are the rules, and you cannot have loose ballast. So, technically, that's against the rules, disqualified, whatever, right? So at that point, he's thrown out. He doesn't get any credit for the round that he won. That is a zero on the points ledger. Keep in mind that you get 30 points for losing first round. So this one's a zero, right? That sucks for Jeff, but no big deal, right? You still claim your best five out of eight divisional events. He's still got five races. He'll obviously improve that zero, throw it out. Life goes on, right? He's got one less race to to do well at, but that zero is not going to cost him. Apparently not. The zero stands as not only one of the eight events that Jeff Lopez attended, but apparently is one of the five that he has to claim, despite having obviously better performances. So now, as it stands right now, instead of claiming 61 points for a fourth round loss at Topeka, Jeff is forced to claim zero points from his disqualification at Tulsa. Again, keep in mind, you do get 30 points if you lose first round. He gets zero, and it has to count. If this is the rule, like, okay, you want to penalize the racer for breaking the rules, for getting disqualified. I guess I get that. Here's the problem, Jed. It's not in the rule book. Anywhere. No. I looked all over it today. This is, to me, like similar to the excessive breaking deal with Jerry Emmons that we talked about earlier in the show. Here we are essentially enforcing rules that don't exist. I'm looking for an explanation. I've tried to find one all day. I don't have one. It gets better, okay? This didn't happen, didn't show up on any points leisure, wasn't made uh, public, wasn't made known to Jeff Lopez until like a week ago. Meaning that up until a, a week, 10 days ago, that zero didn't count. Like, it was thrown out. It was one of the races that didn't claim. So he had a higher point score. And then all of a sudden, he gets snowball, and hey, that zero has to stand. That's the, that's the ruling. Wait a minute. So yeah. you're 
you're telling me the incident happened months ago. This happened in June. And he he was just informed, like, this week or last week? I'm not even sure that he was informed. His points changed. Like, he went from having 560-something to 500, like that. So no official letter with NHRA's logo on the top of it? and Not that I'm aware of. Now, at the same time, not at the Tulsa event, but uh, it's been brought to my attention that in an earlier race, I believe it was at the Double Divisional at Dallas, which was in April, another couple of stock eliminator racers, a pair, were disqualified for a similar rules violation, some type of uh, loose ballast violation. Their points went the same way. They went on accruing points throughout the season. Uh, what? Ten days ago now, they're stripped of those points. The zero has to stand. So the precedent was in place for the three that broke the rules. The problem is there's no precedent. Like, where is this rule? You know what I mean? And and why is it just now being enforced? Because you could just imagine now in Jeff's particular case, I don't think it had altered his plans at all for the season. But he's had an awesome year. And it would have been very possible for him to leave Indy and go to wherever and try to accumulate more races because he had a shot at the national championship. And had he done that, crisscrossed the country trying to win the world championship, and then they pull the rug out from under him now and tell him, oh, by the way, you can't claim that fourth round loss. You have to claim your disqualification from Tulsa. It's only 60 points. What? Just to put it in perspective, the impact on Jeff right now, instead of having 601 points, and having a shot, now albeit a long shot, right? You got to understand the the season that Brian McClanahan and Justin Lamb have put up, okay? But he would go to Vegas and Pomona with a chance, a mathematical chance to win the world championship with 601 points. McClanahan leads right now at 690. Instead, he's got 540 points, and he's in jeopardy and not even finishing the top 10. He would be, third, I think, fourth right now with 601. I believe he's ninth at 540. Because the fourth round loss doesn't count and the disqualification does. So this is, again, I'm looking for clarity. I'm looking for a better explanation here. I'm not getting it. It's my opinion. And I'll go on record. I'll stand behind this. He got bounced on a BS technicality by an overzealous tech guy, right? Whatever. But it's the rules of the rules. I get that. But to me, that's bad. And now... It's compounded because the disqualification essentially costs him any opportunity to compete for a championship. And he didn't even know about it until a week ago. Mm. Maybe I hope that there is a better explanation. Again, I have reached out to the powers that be to try to get one. But again, to me, it feels like Emmons all over again. This is an HRA enforcing a rule that doesn't appear to exist. It just it doesn't feel right at all. No, I'm sure it doesn't feel right to to Jeff either. That's a man. That's that's hard to take, especially considering the season he's had. Because it's it's difficult to do the amount of travel and and chase the points like he has to have the rug pulled out from under you. So I'm hoping you get some kind of explanation soon, Luke, and you can share that with us in a future episode. But Vegas National Event did happen, and there's some results to that as well. And Super Comp and Super Gas got really interesting. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, super interesting. And I'll break down the points a little bit more closely later on. But in Super Comp, uh, when they got down to 10 cars in Vegas, three of the final 10 championship contenders, those that still have a mathematical shot, Steve Williams, Mark Graham, and Tom Stalba. 
None of those three made the final, but they all obviously improved their score. Meanwhile, Don Nichols, the incoming points leader, lost in round one. So obviously he did not improve his score. Again, more on that later. The story from Vegas, Big Jed. Aaron Kennard. We've done this once in the history of the Sports and Drag Racing podcast. It was after Indy. I had a bad beat award. We got to bring that back. Yeah, we need that. Coming into Vegas. (laughs) This applies. Aaron Kennard has a chance to over overtake Devin Eisenhower atop the national standings in Supergas. And essentially, it's down to those two. One of those two is going to win the world championship, right? So what Kennard had to do at the national event was win round five. He does that. He takes over the national points lead. He's almost certainly the 2018 world champion. If he doesn't, he likely will still have an opportunity the next the following week which will be now this weekend at the divisional event but win fifth round you win the world so canard rolls around for round one he actually got paired with don nichols interesting coincidence don nichols is leading the super comp championship points uh, or was until koi collier uh, apparently now wins the tiebreaker in round one canard 26 on the tree not great but takes seventh out at the stripe and had to take seventh out because he's dead on to beat don nichols round number two canard Five take three. Round number three, Kennard, 12 take two against fellow title contender Michael Miller. Round four, Kennard, five drop to dead on seven to defeat Karen Comstock. So I'm looking at this and watching and thinking, this dude is on fire. This dude is winning the world. You can't drive a race car better than he's driven a race car for the first four rounds on the biggest stage, the most pressure that you could possibly have in an HRA competition. Round five, the round that he needs. Win that round, you win the world championship. Aaron Kennard, negative one. No. Oh. Oh, that's brutal. I just feel the wind come out of my sails as I said it. Now, keep in mind, made Devin Eisenhower really happy, right? Devin Eisenhower is still leading. And this thing's not over. The way that this shakes down now, Kennard is still 10 points behind. He still has the divisional event this weekend in Vegas. He must now win round four at the divisional this weekend to overtake Devin Eisenhower. That's his last shot. Um, So basically, he staged up for the round to win the championship. In order to get back to that situation, he has to see three win lights to get back to the round. And I'm just telling you, Jed, I've been... uh, I've been fortunate in my race career. I've been on every side of this equation. And it's worked out every which way that it could. Like I've come into the last race or two of the year leading and watched somebody pass me. I've come into the last race or two of the year leading and held on. I've come into the last race of the year needing to do well and didn't. I've come into the last race of the year needing to do well and did. And it's huge Mm. pressure. So I can empathize with Devin and with Aaron and with everybody that's going through these. But man, what a kick in the gut. (laughs) To just to go on and put on the show that Aaron Kennard was putting on on that stage and then do really nothing wrong. I mean, obviously, he, I'm sure he's kicking himself for not putting one more thou in the box, but you go one thou red, man. Like, that's it's heartbreaking when the red light comes on, but that time slip man or woman did not want to hand him that ticket. Like, that's not what you want to see. I'd just assume it'd be 17 red at that point. Yeah, no, that's brutal. It's a, it is a bad beat for sure. But, you know, I guess one advantage, if you can call it that, that Aaron has, he don't have to drive across country. He's going to be at a, a facility he's very familiar with. 
in a setting he's very familiar with. So, you know, hopefully it will give him the calming effect that uh, allows him to go out and just do his thing and compete for a championship and just see how it all plays out. Be very interesting to see that one finished up there in Pomona, and I look forward to to hearing about it when we do the next episode. Luke, let's pay some bills. We want to get a couple of sponsors a spotlight that they deserve, and then we're going to talk to Randy Folk about what we talked about last week and get his take on a few things surrounding the Million Dollar Drag Race. All right, guys, joining us now is the owner of the original Million Dollar Drag Race, uh, a guy that uh, we had some discussion about last week, and we definitely uh, are excited to have Randy Folk on the phone with us. Uh, Randy wanted to come in and talk to us a little bit about some things that have been said in last week's show and uh, certainly clear the air in his mind and get some clarification on some things. So, Randy, glad uh, you were able to join us tonight. Thanks for taking some time for us. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, so yeah. obviously, uh, Luke, go ahead. You, you take this. No, I was just going to say, Randy, had actually, uh, we, as I mentioned earlier in the show, we had a, a brief discussion earlier in the week um, and, and just kind of rehashing some of the things that um, happened at Montgomery. And I wouldn't say that you had necessarily um, um, had an had issue with anything that we talked about in last week's show, but certainly wanted to clarify a few things. And we basically said, hey, stage is yours, Randy. What what better way to, uh, to tell the masses than to come on um, the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast yourself? So thanks for coming on the show. All right, Luke. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Um, you, the one, the main thing that we wanted to clarify was our saying, or my saying, I should say, that there was, uh, there is little to no tech a million. We didn't give you credit for the diaper rule, which is unique to your race and obviously a great safety measure. Um, and there are, as you were explaining to me, some. Uh, Texas safety procedures that kind of go on a bit more behind the scenes. I'll let you kind of take it from here and explain. Well, we're not, we're not super tight with our tech, but we, we do look for catch cans, diapers, anything that's got to do with safety on the track. It's, it's about a Southern race. We grew it by leaving it a Southern race and it'll always be a Southern race, but uh, we're slowly tightening up our, fire suit rules and getting rid of the no no pants you know driving in shorts i probably told 25 30 racers first round on uh friday morning to get pants on and they all cooperated very well and you just you gotta have them with kid gloves i guess is the way i feel but we are tightening up tech a little bit every year the uh, the topic that obviously was on everyone's minds and was the big discussion now for the, really the last week and a half was obviously Corey Gletti's situation at 14 cars. You uh, were obviously in a unique position there to A, watch it all go down and essentially be the man that makes the call and decides what's, what happens next. Um, a lot of different... Um, uh, variables, thoughts, a lot of different perspectives have to go through your head from your vantage point and, and your unique position there. Walk us through that, um, that 
the the instance, the crash, the decision from your standpoint, and all of the different uh, obstacles and 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 um, decisions that you've got to go through that most of us wouldn't even think about. Well, first of all, it was a very tough decision. Um, I talked with my race director, Troy Williams Sr. I talked with a lot of racers who I have a lot of respect for. And it basically boiled down to that my break rule is to give the racers a chance that have driven a long ways and spent a lot of money. And if they roll a lifter or break a tranny or something they can't return, they got a win light, it's for them. Now, was it meant to be for crashes? No, not at all. But with that being said, until it's in writing on my flyers, I felt that I had to put him back in. And it happened after the finish line, so that's why Slate wasn't in. And that's just, um, it was a tough decision, Luke. Jed, it was tough. Lost oh, yeah. Sleep. Yeah, we could all tell that was a very difficult decision, Randy. Do you do you feel like you would change anything now that you've had some time to reflect on it and you, you've thought about it? Obviously, you've seen and heard what people have to say about it. Do you feel like, knowing what you know now, that you would have done it the same way? Uh, I think I made the right decision for what happened when it happened without nothing on my flyer. So yeah, I cannot answer the question right now for next year. I've got a long time to think about it. Um, I just can't answer that question at this time. But for what I did at that time, I think it was the correct decision. Too early to call for next year yet. Gotcha. As you mentioned, obviously next year's million is almost a year away. Uh, a lot of things bouncing around in your head, probably nothing that you're ready to, to lock in and publicize at this point. But can you share with us any other potential changes, or not maybe even potential changes, but uh, possibilities, things that you're looking into for next year, or is that still on the hush until you make an official decision? Uh, I haven't really got much thought of anything yet. <laughs> right. I mean, still really, in recovery mode. I'm, I'm, yeah. Actually, we still are. Jennifer's still working a lot of hours. But uh, that's something I got a lot of time to decide, so I really don't have any input for that right now. I, mean, sure. I, I guess I'm a firm believer and you know, I've always said to people, if something's not broke, you don't fix it. So, and obviously the million is not broke. So. Take a walk back in time with the Trinity. Cause I, I, we discuss, we discussed this a little bit over the phone and I've just found it fascinating again, from your perspective, a perspective that most of us as racers don't see or even consider, um, we talked about the the roots of the million, and you you say Southern style and how how George started it, and you've kind of continued with the um, Southern style. There's no better way to put it um, because it's not certainly the only race that uh, adopts that that. Mm, I don't want to say lackadaisical attitude, but you, you I mean it's not unique in that region of the country for uh, tech and safety concerns to be a little bit lax, right? That's not just a million dollar race thing. Um, but take us back in time a little bit to we talked about kind of setting that precedent and then how it it, it really came to the forefront the year that we went to Indy. 
Randy, part of our conversation on the phone, I've just found fascinating. I think our listeners would find interesting, too, in, in some of the history in the Million Dollar Race and maybe uh, some explanation as to uh, how the race started, why things run the way that they run now. Take us back to 2010. We we, we said this year's Million was uh, in the running for 2010 as the, the most bizarre, odd, um, crazy Million in history. 2010, we go to Indy. Um, the race ends up moving to Muncie, like in the snap of a finger. Take from your perspective, which is obviously very unique. You're seeing things that the racers never see and never think about. What happened at Indy first off? Well, the only reason we was going to Indy was because I did have a deal with Kurt Johnson, who was managing Indy at the time, that the track would be identical to the other big bracket races that they've had there the last two years. Everything was smooth, and on Wednesday he comes out and says he got a phone call from California, and he has to enforce every letter in the rule book. IHR driver's licenses will not be accepted, and they have to have an IHR license. Basically, it was about to ruin the million. So there was another tough decision. So we had two tracks that I got a hold of, and they both said yes, they would take it. And uh, for safety issues, I went with Muncie. I've never raced at the, what was the one that I told you about, Jed, or Luke? It was uh, Lions, wasn't it? The other option? Lions. And I heard a lot about the shutdown area there. So I went Muncie for the shutdown area safety factor. And uh, there you have it. We, we moved the race. And that's literally within, from the time that you and Kurt Johnson had that conversation to the announcement that we're going to Muncie, what was it, eight hours? No. Not even that. Two hours. <laughs> I, uh, we probably had we probably had 80 to 100 cars on the grounds already on Wednesday morning and called a driver's meeting and told them what's happening. And we all loaded our wagons, and now we called that race the chase to the million. The chase to the million. <laughs> the chase to the million. What? And everybody wanted to know, you know, where we're going to have it next year and where we're going to move it to. So they had they had good time, fun with it. What, from your perspective, and obviously it's a it's a guesstimate, but the percentage of racers at that event that that's just let's just strictly stick to an NHRA license that wouldn't have been able to compete because they didn't have the proper credential for the quote unquote. I, letter of the law NHRA? Yeah, I would say we'd have lost 80% of them. What do you think that those numbers are any different today? As far as the the million, not a lot. No, right. But now I guess IHRA license make it easier. So, But I was told they wouldn't accept IHRA back then. So it's just a, it's a southern race. Randy, the floor is yours. That's all of the, the questions, the bullet points that we had necessarily. But to all our listeners out there, and, and we get a decent amount, the um, for your customers, is there any message that you want to pass on, whether it's regarding the 2018 million or everything that coming coming uh, henceforth from here? Well, I mean, I just, every decision Jenny and Jason and I make is pretty much for the racers. We try not to make a decision at all for folk promotions. Uh, the Corey, the Corey, the Liddy deal, 
that was tough. And, uh, it, but it would have been to my advantage not to let him back in. It, it would have made three cars in the semis, but that's not how we make our decisions. We try to do what's right. I mean, I don't know how many tracks shut down time trials or shut down eliminations to give a guy a time trial that traveled to get there and got there late. But we've done that ever since I've had it. We've always just, we try to cater the racers. We're racer friendly. And that's what helps the million stay where it is. Yeah. Randy being behind the scenes there as part of the announcing staff, uh, I can uh, testify to that. You guys always put the racers best interest uh, up front when you're making decisions. Um, the Corey deal, I think, you know, you did the best you could with the situation you were dealt, you know, had that happened second or third round, I don't know if it changes things, but personally, I don't know if I wouldn't have made a different decision, but you're, you're there at the quarterfinals of the million, a lot happening. So, um, you know, I think you guys did a really good job of making decisions this year with all the weather and situations you were dealt, uh, did the, yeah, the best you could. I think it worked. I think it worked great. Yep. You were in on the decision-making and I heard Luke say something about, you know, Luke, I think you said that you thought maybe you should have run it Saturday night and got three or four rounds in, but by the time that decision was made, it was already two o'clock and, uh, we were going towards 350 entries. We we're at over 340 and it was still, you know, time trials hadn't started. We were sure. looking to maybe sudden. We were looking to maybe set a new record for the million, which two years ago was 356. And we I think we were going to set a new record, but things happened. So, so you would, you would uh, estimate that, that you, one. would you estimate that you lost 50 plus cars by having to move the million? That's we just rounded off at, at 50. Yes. We right. lost 50. Uh, and uh, it really hurt me too. I mean, just because of the racers that came and they couldn't race on Sunday. And that hurts when you, they come up and say, man, I can't stay. I said, I'm so sorry. You know, we just couldn't have got the race started on Saturday night. We wouldn't have got second round started time. You did your time trial buybacks and you know, it was already two o'clock. Right. No, no, I know you're truncated on a time time situation. There's no good decision at that point for sure. So we just did what we thought was best. Randy, I, I hate to put you on the spot, especially since, uh, you know, I wasn't well, do down there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, given the situation, you've rarely had to move the main event. Rarely. So, you know, you've I been blessed. I think this blessed. is the second time. Yeah, second time, Jared. Been blessed with really good weather, and you've made really good decisions when you've had a challenge or two. But given how this played out this year, does that – is there any thought process to you um, looking at the schedule and how things could be adjusted differently in future years? Yeah, we're always listening, trying to improve stuff always. Um, I, the biggest mistake I made this year is listening to the weather people. And yeah. they kept getting their forecast better and better and better for Saturday. Otherwise, I'd have mixed Sunday's race with Friday's race. And I had to make that decision Friday morning and with their weather forecast backing it up till four or five o'clock rain, I thought we'd have a real good start and everything. And I, so I chose to keep two separate races. And of course that was wrong. 
But again, I listen to the weather people who get paid to be wrong. <laughs> yeah, given the information you had, you, you made the best decision possible. So, um, you know, obviously we all would, would do things different at times in our life when we were faced with that, especially from a promotion side. But I don't, I, again, being part of that, I know that the decisions made were trying to figure out the best interest to everybody involved. So, again, I would testify to that to anyone. Well, thank you. All right. Well, Randy. Thank you for joining us tonight. Appreciate you taking some time. Obviously, it's been a long day for you. Had some travel. Um, thank you for working us in and giving us a few minutes of your time. And I uh, hope you uh, get start catching up on your rest now. Get back to normal. <laughs> okay. All right, you guys. I really appreciate this. And, uh, good luck with everything. Thank you, Randy. I did that. That interview was one of our more awkward. I think. Yeah, uh, Randy. That, that's not what he does every day. So. Sure. It was a little different, and you know, I'm sure he he needs to be careful exactly how he phrases some things. So it, it's understandable. Yeah, and I'm, to be clear, I'm not going to walk back anything necessarily that I said on last week's episode. And I don't think that we're being overly critical, to be completely honest. But there are just telling it as we saw it for the most part. And I don't think that anybody has any trouble with that. One thing that I will say, and Randy mentioned this briefly, and I probably should have got asked him to expand upon it, but the idea that when Corey Galetti was reinstated, or I don't guess he was ever really out, but uh, allowed to swap cars going into the round of seven in the million dollar race, Randy mentioned that that decision cost him $10,000. Simply, and the, the math behind this, he got a little bit more into this when we were on the phone, which is why I wanted to expand on it. Um, they disqualify Corey in that instance and don't reinstate his opponent, um, Slate Cummings. Instead of being seven cars, there are six. That means that instead of being four semifinalists, there are three. Semifinalists at the million get $10,000. So that's where Randy's comment was coming from. Like that reinstatement or, or leaving Corey in the race cost him ten grand. Now, there have been some, I, I guess, to some extent, myself included, they're critical of that decision for, I think, good reason, at least the, the premise of it. And I think Randy did a decent job of explaining, obviously, that's not what the rule was intended for. It sounds like, although we wouldn't come out and say it, that it may be revisited in the future. But while a great many of us, myself included, were critical of that decision, let's take the opposite and say, OK, he throws Corey Glitty out. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that now there's a buy run at three in the million. And somebody goes back and looks at the flyer and goes, well, of course, Randy picked a heck of a time to uh, disqualify somebody for excessive breaking. How convenient it saves him 10 grand. He gets crucified for that. Randy Folk's in a no-win situation there, if we're going to be completely honest. Yeah, no doubt. But uh, also something to consider was there would have been 10,000 less for those remaining racers to to chop and there would have been some deals prior to that so that could have got interesting as well like that uh, so it got probably got the best result that they could have gotten but it, it definitely could have created a lot of different scenarios had he eliminated Corey from the program right there yeah i mean whether i don't think that that's going to make anyone agree with him that didn't agree with him you know or agree with that decision that didn't agree with that decision it just case in point that there is a lot to take in when you're in those shoes, which is something that we tried to mention last week as well. One thing, too, that I wanted to to clarify, and again, I don't know that this necessarily changes anyone's view on this. Last week on the show, I read from the NHRA rulebook the 
disqualification procedure as it pertains to excessive braking, in which it says if, as the result of excessive braking, a driver crosses a boundary and or hits a barrier, including past the finish line, they are disqualified. There was a lot of confusion at the event. Again, we talked about this last week as to, well, he hit the wall or crossed the center line after the finish line, so that's okay. And I thought, well, no, like I'm reading you the rule book. That's not okay. It is apparently, the way that I understand it, in the rule book that if you cross the center line and or hit a boundary past the finish line in the result of regular competition, like that is not the result of excessive braking, that that's okay. Like you're not necessarily disqualified. And the the only example that I can find of that ever really being an issue, it's in the professional ranks, but last year at Dallas when Steve Torrance blew out a tire, hit the wall just past the finish line in route to winning second round. I think it was over Richie Crampton. Obviously destroyed his car. He did make the semifinal round in another chassis. And that was allowed because, again, he hit the wall past the finish line. So I guess if you're technically going by the rules here, assuming that you determine that Corey Galetti's accident is not the result of excessive braking, then I guess it's okay to cross the center line and or hit the wall and not necessarily be disqualified. Now, Corey even admitted like his, his accident was the result of excessive braking. And to be completely clear, as I said last episode, Brandy and the Million Dollar Race don't necessarily have to adhere by uh, the NHRA rulebook in that instance or the IHRA rulebook in that instance. Like They have rules on the books that are not in the NHRA and IHRA rulebook, particularly the one stating that a driver can change cars in the event of breakage or, in this case, accident crash. But I just thought that that was interesting to bring up. And I don't think it changes anyone's opinion, but that, I think, is where a lot of that confusion stemmed from in the moment. Yeah, very interesting stuff there, Luke, and a good uh, wrap-up of that. So we need to move forward. And speaking of interesting, the NHRA championship chases, uh, and as per usual, this time of year, they're they're just – you know, a very hot topic. A lot of scenarios are, are playing out, and a lot of scenarios remain to play out. But you break it down as well as anybody. So tell us a little bit about where we stand in some categories right now. Love to, Big Jed. Nerd hat on. If you don't care <laughs> about this stuff, this is pretty much the end of the show. We'll see you next week. If you do, oh, all right. There's, there's, there's my half dozen. You're still here. All right. <laughs> top dragster we have been saying all year that paul nero is the world champion not so fast my friend paul nero is yeah. probably going to be the world champion but it's going to come down to the last race for top dragster top dragster is not contested at pomona it all gets decided in both top dragster and top sportsman this weekend at the divisional event in las vegas uh, paul nero is the incoming leader by a wide margin he is the favorite overwhelming favorite to win the world championship there is one guy that has a chance to mess this all up. Mark Jones, a Division Four runner from Louisiana, has a shot. So you're telling me there's a chance. Don't do it, Mark. Mark Jones has to win this race. It has to be a six-round race, which it will be uh, in Las Vegas. It's 48-car field. Has to win the race. Nothing less to overtake Paul Nero. Jones is, again, the only racer with a chance to unseat Paul Nero and wreck that, and he would win it by, like, three points or something if he wins the race. Nero will be there, I assume. Uh, Nero cannot claim points, but 
if he wins, Mark Jones cannot. So there's something there to, to potentially look forward to. Top sportsman, a bit more interesting. Uh, we've talked about this to some extent. Ronnie Proctor in the lead with 589 points. Should he make the trip from West Virginia to Las Vegas? And I don't know if he plans to or not. Should he make that trip, he will be improving a third-round loss this weekend. So he has opportunity to improve his total. At 575 points, that's 14 points behind, that's essentially a round and a half, sits J.R. Loebner. J.R. goes to Vegas, improving a second-round loss. So if Proctor doesn't come and or doesn't improve, J.R. would have to then win the third round, advance to the fourth round to pass Ronnie Proctor. But that wouldn't guarantee anything because Doug Crumlich will also be there, and Doug Crumlich also has a shot. He sits at 570 points, 19 points behind Proctor. He is also improving a third round loss. So a lot to be decided in Top Sportsman. And at the end of the day Sunday, one of those three will be crowned this year's NHRA world champion. If you thought, Big Jed... That that was confusing? <laughs> Wait for this one. Superstock. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, by my count, seven competitors that come into Vegas with a chance, mathematically speaking, to win this year's NHRA World Championship. The leader and favorite, I guess, but this isn't like a Paul Nero favorite, is Justin Lamb, the reigning Superstock World Champion Justin enters the event with 594 points. He's improving a second round loss at Vegas. He's a round and a half ahead, uh, improving a, as poor a performance as anyone. So he is, quote unquote, in the driver's seat. But if and when Justin's win light doesn't come on at any point in competition, that lead is far from safe. Brad Zaskowski sits in second, 14 points behind. He is also improving a second round loss this weekend at Las Vegas. Chris Cheney is 21 points behind. That's just over two rounds. Chris cannot earn points at Vegas. Not sure if he's be there. he will be there or not. He will be improving a fourth-round loss in Pomona, and he is entered. Now, Lamb, Zaskowski, any of the others could put the total uh, at a point where Chris Cheney can't get there. His ceiling, should he win Pomona, is 6-17. It's possible that someone gets past that this weekend. But as of right now, Chris Cheney has a chance. Anthony Bertozzi. 17 World Championships can't be wrong, Big Jed. Anthony sits at 569. That's two and a half rounds out of the lead. He is improving a third-round loss this weekend in Las Vegas. Tyler Bohannon has a shot, 567. So what is that, 27 points out of the lead? Cannon points this weekend. He'll be improving a third-round loss at Pomona. He is entered in Pomona. Uh, Similar to Chris Cheney's situation, Tyler's ceiling is 612 points, but as of right now, that is mathematically eligible. A little bit longer shots, Pete Perry and Jimmy DeFrank. Yeah, that Jimmy DeFrank. The one that I booted off my team. Yeah, that Jimmy. (laughs) They uh, have 516 and 514 points respectively, which is a ways back. That's uh, almost 80 points back now. It is 80 points back for Jimmy DeFrank. But both Perry and DeFrank can earn points at both the divisional event at Vegas and the national event at Pomona. They would need very late round finishes at both events to overtake the current total. But as again, as of right now, heading into Vegas, they both have a shot. So that's seven racers. Again, if you had to handicap it, I guess Justin Lamb is a slight favorite, but Zaska, any of the seven could win it. And particularly uh, Lamb, Zaskowski, 
uh, Bertozzi probably have the best shots, but none of those guys are out of it. Stop it. That's jumbled up in Superstock, Luke. Wow. It is. It's, it will be a lot clearer at the end of this weekend, and it, and it could potentially be over by the end of this weekend. But it is super interesting and, and rare that you come into a race this late in the season and so many people still have an opportunity. And, and really, I get, you know, we say when we got down that list, this is mathematical. If I'm Jimmy DeFrank, especially if I'm Jimmy DeFrank and I've won four of these things, I'm coming into Vegas thinking, I got a shot here. You know, I mean, it, it's a lot has to happen. A lot has to fall right. And he's got to perform. But it's entirely possible. Stock eliminator. Uh, we've detailed this previously. I won't spend a ton of time on it. Both Brian McClanahan and Justin Lamb have had unbelievable seasons. They own the two highest points totals in any of the sportsman ranks. One of them is not going to win the world championship. McClanahan has 690 points. He leads Justin Lamb by one single point. Justin goes to Vegas, can earn points this weekend at the divisional. The problem, he's improving on a fifth round loss. So he has to turn on the win light in round five to take the lead, assuming that McClanahan doesn't improve. If he does that, if Justin Lamb takes the lead here, it still ain't over. McClanahan also improving a fifth round loss at the divisional this weekend, and then would go to Pomona, potentially improving a third round loss. So basically, if Justin loses prior to round six, it's over. It's Brian McClanahan. If he advances into round six and or beyond, it will likely go to Pomona and McClanahan will have a chance to yet again overtake him. And then if that was the case, both of them would be north of 700, which is incredible. Super comp is probably the one that is more crazy and more wide open than super stock, if you can believe that. We mentioned earlier, with his win at Noble at the 8th Mile Division race, Coy Collier takes the lead, the national points lead, on a tiebreaker uh, over Don Nichols currently with 600 points. Nichols also has 600. He can earn points at both Vegas and Pomona, but he's improving a fourth-round loss at Vegas. He's improving a second-round loss at Pomona. Not certainly... Uh, a score that could be improved upon, but not a given that he's going anywhere. Like I said, there's a chance that Coy Collier's 600 holds up over Don Nichols' 600. But there are a lot of people that will have something to say about that. As you work your way down the Super Comp Top 10, Jed, you got Mike Robolato, you got Chris Garrettson, Austin Williams, Devin Eisenhower, all currently in the Top 10, but they're all maxed out. They can't earn any more points. They don't have the total that Coy Collier and or Don Nichols have right now. So they're not going to win the championship. Mark Graham has a shot. Mark Graham advanced to the semifinals at the national event in Las Vegas, which now puts him 33 points behind that 600 mark set by Collier and Nichols. He is improving second round losses, Graham is, at both the divisional event at Vegas and the world finals at Pomona. So a lot of room to improve there. And as of right now, just needs three and a half rounds. Mark Graham has a shot at this thing, a good shot. Steve Williams, who also went deep into eliminations in Las Vegas, sits at 557 points. That's 43 points back. He can only earn points at the Vegas division race, but he's improving a first round loss. So if Steve Williams could advance to would that be fifth round would get him there. Depends on whether or not it's a seven or eight round race. Certainly, if he went to sixth round, he would advance past Coy Collier and Don Nichols into the lead, assuming, again, that Nichols didn't improve. Lots of moving parts here. Uh, Ray Ray Miller yes. has a shot. Tom Stalba has a shot. 
Steve Collier and Rob Neighbor, if I'm doing the math right, still have mathematical shots. So when you add all that together, that is eight racers in contention for the Super Comp World Championship with just two races left on the docket. That is extremely rare. Yeah, what a, I just thought Superstock was jumbled up, but this is uh, just another category where there's so many different scenarios that can play out. And I guess, talk about Super Gas, Luke, that's one that doesn't have so many different scenarios to play out, but it's still going to be very interesting, as uh, we talked about with Kennard. Yeah, one last thing on Supercomp. I told you, like, I don't think it's crazy at all to think that Koi Collier's win at Noble could ultimately win in the World Championship. I think it's possible that nobody gets over 600, but there's just so many racers taking a shot at it. Some have to do a lot. Some have to just, quote-unquote, win a couple rounds, which just winning a couple rounds when you know the stakes. It's a little bit different deal. My bold prediction here, I really think it's like, I don't know if it's 50-50. I think there's like a 40% chance that Collier holds on. He gets over 600. But my bold prediction is that Koi Collier's 600 will be good for second. I don't know who's going to crest that, who's going to pass it. Might be Don Nichols, might be Mark Graham, might be Tom Stalba. I think somebody gets over that mark. I think somebody goes to six, whatever, something over 600, and, and Koi ultimately finishes second. Very good breakdown of that, as always. Nobody does it quite like you do, Luke. Now, I know you're just geeked up about all this. and I love you know, it. I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that the six of you are still here because you're <laughs> digging this as much as I am. This is awesome stuff. Super gas. We kind of broke down earlier. Eisenhower leads it. Devin Eisenhower, young racer out of Indianapolis, friend of the podcast. 622 points, and he's done. He can't earn any more points. Kennard goes to Vegas. Must, again, win round four to overtake eisenhower again one i think long shot michael miller still has a mathematical chance he can still improve his point score at both vegas and pomona but he would essentially have to make the final round at both events and that's assuming that the target doesn't go up you know i mean if Kennard passes Devin eisenhower he could extend that that mark to where miller couldn't get there so that'll be something to watch too but essentially uh, it's it's between Kennard and Eisenhower, and at this point, it's just down to Kennard. Now, Jed, all of that said, and that was a that was an in-depth breakdown. Uh, it was the, very good. There's a lot of numbers that, that very few people care about. But what we care about, Jed, how does this influence our Pick'em contest? You, me, Kevin McKenna. And um, I'll just say, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not looking good for the home team at all. I think we might have fooled ourselves a year ago into thinking at least me thinking i'm pretty good yeah. at this i beat you we didn't yeah yeah that's a good point we're not very good at this in fact i would go so far as to say we suck at this Jed. kevin mckenna is running a circle around us just a couple of exp- uh, of examples of how much expertise we lack in this area in top sportsman kevin has ronnie proctor who is the incoming leader he is the favorite the other two that have a chance Jerry Loebner and Doug Crumlich, undrafted. They were on the table for us, Jed. We didn't <laughs> either one of them. In well, Supercomp, Jed, there are eight, count them eight racers we just went through that have a chance to win the World Championship. Uh, there were two of the eight that were drafted in our picks, Coy Collier and Rob Neighbor. Guess who got those two? <laughs> I want to guess Kevin. 
Kevin McKenna. Yeah, those those two are not on Team Jed. They are not on Team Luke. As I break this down, there is a, a possibility. There is a scenario in which Kevin McKenna would not beat us. But Kevin has what I would consider to be the the favorites going into Las Vegas in four different categories of the six. Let me walk you down a road, Big Jed, in which Kevin McKenna doesn't beat us. Okay. Uh, I want to go down that road. Okay. Yeah, I do too. I mean, nothing against the guys on Team Kevin. No. Uh, I mean, other than we're not really. Except I want my racers to beat them. Yeah. Sure. Kevin has Ronnie Proctor in top sportsman. As I mentioned, the only two that have a shot to unseat Ronnie Proctor, Jared Loebner and Doug Kremlich. Jared Loebner and Doug Kremlich, we were not smart enough to pick either one of them. One of them has to win so that Kevin doesn't. Okay. That would be a good start. Similar situation in Supercomp. Somebody, somebody not named Rob Neighbor, needs to pass Coy Collier so that Kevin doesn't win Supercomp. If those two things happen, which are possible, Justin Lamb needs to not win Superstock, and one of our guys does, right? So that, for me, would be Anthony Bertozzi. For you, would be Brad, Brad Zeskowski. And or, well, Supergas doesn't really even matter because Kevin has Devin Eisenhower and Kevin has Aaron Kennard. Kevin's <laughs> going to win Supergas. <laughs> so basically, Kevin can't win another category, and we'd have a chance. If he wins two, the very best we could do is tie, and that's not even likely. You're probably going to get Paul Nero. I may get Brian McClanahan. Other than that, it's not looking good for us. Which there should be bonus points for original picks. You know, it's easy to redraft and get a guy that's in contention. That's a or, good uh, Apparently it's not easy because I tried it and didn't, it didn't work. <laughs> Maybe that's in so. theory, that would be easy. But original picks ought to have bonus points. Because Nero was my guy from the get-go. He was. In fairness to Kevin... Justin Lamb was his guy from the get-go in both classes. Let me just pull this back up here to, I believe, Devin Eisenhower. Yep, yep. Devin Eisenhower was Kevin's guy from the get-go. Yeah, I, I'm with you. In never theory. mind. Nah, yeah, never not, mind. Not, not, not I was so. trying to find a loophole, and that you closed it, so it really doesn't matter. Original pick shouldn't have bonus points. It's ridiculous. In the end, I'm relatively certain we will bow at the feet of... Kevin McKenna. I don't even know what our pittance for uh, this disaster will be. <laughs> We've not yet established that. Um, our listeners, I'm sure, will come through and provide us with a very entertaining price to pay. Oh, my goodness. For our, our inabilities. So we have that to look forward to. Yeah, can't wait. I'm living it. And I, obviously, I found a loophole in the last punishment which I, I don't think was very popular among podcast co-hosts or listeners. and But I found a loophole, so it is what it is. I'm sure that the rules will be well-defined on this go-around, and I will accept my punishment unless I can find a loophole in it, too. Jed, how did I start the show? Ridiculous, yet predictable. <laughs> I'll, I'll reiterate. All right, Luke. Let's shut this down. We'll tell them what's on tap next. <laughs> what better time? In a song to do the Justin Lamb. Win a bunch of races and you do it with the fam. You do the Kevin Brandon, light a smack across the land. Then you do the L ride and you come out like the world champ. Honey, where are we racing next week? It's time to discuss next week's major events, news, updates, releases, and announcements. It's what's on tap. 
Hi, Luke. As per usual, a little bit of everything on the, the docket. Not a whole lot of racing, but you can do it on either side, bracket racing or uh, Lucas Oil events, NHRA style. The 10 Grand Slam is happening at Richmond Dragway up in Virginia. That's uh, always a very popular event there the Davis family puts on. Uh, the Bracket Racing World Series, which uh, we've talked about quite a bit. It's going to be at Silver Dollar Motorsports Park in Reynolds, Georgia. That's the SFG uh, Bracket Racing World Series. Um, so be interesting to see how that plays out. And NHRA side, Division 7 Lucas Oil event will be held at the Strip at Las Vegas, as you mentioned a little earlier. And that is the final divisional with only Pomona remaining next week for the uh, national event side of things so not a ton of races on the docket but some very good stuff for people to go participate in good luck to everyone that gets out to those races it's and, starting uh, to wind down big Jim. yeah yeah it is racing season's coming to a close alabama plays lsu saturday so i'm skipping any racing i'm gonna sit back and watch the tide and the tigers get after it but no nobody cares about that so that wraps us up here on this episode number 101 of the sportsman drag racing podcast want to say thanks to our sponsors bte and this is bracket racing elite and certainly thanks to randy folk for joining us and and talking to us a little bit about uh, how decisions are made and uh just a little bit of rumor and things surrounding the, uh, well, not rumor, but a little bit of um, uh, of our take on how things happened last week at the million. So thank you, Randy, for coming and joining us and talking about that. And Luke, it's shout-out time. I'm very excited about this week's shout-outs. Shout-out to all of my Texicans, including the head Texican, the one, the only, the original Tex-Mex. Shout-out to the lovely Miss Elizabeth Lopez. Shout out, Big Jed, to overzealous tech officials. <laughs> Shout out to loose ballast because that term just sounds scandalous. It does. Like, I didn't have to throw in that it was a two and a half pound ankle weight. That doesn't sound scandalous. Loose ballast? That sounds like you did something bad wrong. Um, <laughs> Shout out to Southern Style Racers. Oh, that's Shout me. Out, that's you. That's really me, too. Shout out to drop catchers not me Shout, yeah not at all. I, I, I got time slips that can attest to that uh shout out to bad beats shout out to the 10 grand slam just because it may very well be my favorite event name going yeah shout out to drug tests and <laughs> shout out to kevin mckenna who will own us by this time next week and i'll just this is more of a plea big jed than a shout out but i'm going to shout out our listeners because it is our listeners jed that will ultimately determine our fate and the mm. price that we have to pay for just getting skull drug in this pick'em contest by kevin mckenna so shout out to our listeners in hopes that you'll be easy on us because at some point yeah. i'm going to ask you what needs to happen and yeah, guys, go easy. I mean, I don't have, I don't like stickers on my paint, and I don't have much room on the back window. So let's don't get crazy with this thing. Just let's do something simple and just get past it, okay? Um, yeah, I'm I, not I, going to ever win this competition. I don't have any desire to uh, run down the racetrack at next year's Spring Fling Million in my skibbies or something like that. And I could see the <laughs> listeners coming up oh, with that. Quit, so. Luke. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this isn't a site anyone wants to see, Jed. Let's, Dropping let's, ideas. 
let's just let's keep it clean. Let's let's keep it realistic. Uh, I don't have a good feeling about this. <laughs> I want to shout out to my buddy Michael Mockney. Uh, Michael is a guy that that's a three car owner, and he's got people that drive them. He crew chiefs for them, and he had all three cars go to the winter circle at a recent event in Florida, which is a really cool deal. He and his wife Danielle are great people. They parked by me at the WFC. Uh, they deserve some recognition for a really cool accomplishment. Danielle, I think, made a semis at that event as well. So really big deal. So, Michael, crew chief of the year by far. Congratulations to you and a very special shout-out for you there, bud. And uh, the rest of you, we'd love for you to tell us what you think. You can message us right there on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page, or you can at either Luke or myself or the both of us on the Twitter Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I, and I am at JP11X, another long but fun show. Enjoyed talking to you about the previous week's events. I think we got JJ's Top 10 coming up next week and going to have a lot to talk about as well with these points chases shaping up. So thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Banging on the door, bump, bump, bump until I get in attitude like I am already winning. Today's podcast is brought to you by This Is Bracket Racing Elite. If you're an open-minded racer with a desire to improve on the racetrack, This Is Bracket Racing Elite can provide the tools to help you do so. Jed, I don't think you were uh, muted there. Actually, I was. Oh, well, I could Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.